This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. All right, I think we're going to get started here. We are going to do this kind of working lunch, and what I think would be interesting is we will put up pictures that each of us have, and each of us have donated to this, and what we'll do is I would like to talk the other people who have not done that person to talk about what you would do to treat that patient, okay? Does that make sense? And then you guys can ask questions after each patient, okay? Just do what I'm told. So, <laughs> so. I'm trying to move forward, there we go. Okay, I showed this picture earlier, and I think we all agree we would not do this to one of our patients. Um, I would think that, number one, too much Botox. Number two, filler's kind of in the wrong place. Number three, I'm guessing there was some kind of a lower face lift done as well, which is why we have a lot of that extra skin there. Maybe some implants. I think she had some kind of implant in the lips as well that you can't see as well on this picture. Um, any other comments? Yeah, I think one of the problems that some of these, I mean, in this particular case, the actresses have is with uh, just aging gracefully. So they, they want to continue to look younger and younger and younger, but the problem is then they look even older. So if we do too much, then we can kind of re reverse the, the effects. We can make it worse than just doing a little bit and just aging gracefully. And I, I, I actually say a little different. I, don't, I think people want to look as good as they feel. If they feel young, they want to look young. And I think for me, it means that it's that combination therapy. The idea is that these patients, to get them kind of where they want to be, it's not see them once a year or twice a year. Oftentimes they're in, they'll do a series, and then they'll come back for that procedure mm -hmm. once every three to four months. They'll do fillers and toxins, and they'll see us for that every six months for the toxins, five to six months for the toxins. They'll get fillers maybe every couple years, but the idea is that, again, not to overdo it so that they look funny, they look weird. Yes. Okay, so now we're gonna do our patients. We'll start with the male patient, and we won't, let's, let, let's talk about what we would do before you tell us what you actually did, Gene, okay? No problem. All right, why don't you go ahead and well, start? I would, if this patient came to me in consultation and said, what can you do for me? I would turn it around and say to the patient, what, when you look in the mirror, what bothers you? I think that's important. Um, because I made that mistake once, and, and the patient said, well, there's nothing wrong with that. And I you know, got very angry with me, and so I always reverse it. And so if this patient said, well, I hate my forehead, then I would say, well, you're a great candidate for Botox. And I would uh, explain to him, you know, what to expect. And uh, I would probably inject him with about 48 units of Botox between his glabella and his forehead, lateral forehead. I would stay away from <clears throat> the, uh, the mid-pupillary area, otherwise those eyebrows will be even lower than they are now. And I would tell them that you still may have some lines across your forehead, but um, at least you know we're going to be safe and, and do it that way. Uh, you might, at some point after you've injected the Botox, have the patient come back and discuss using fillers in that area. And um, 
So that's that's probably how I would approach it. Same with around his, his crow's feet. I would consider using Botox there as well. Uh, I agree with you. I would definitely do some botulinum toxin. I think that we do tend to use a little bit of filler in there, especially if the lines are really deep in that gobeller area uh, along the forehead lines as well. I would, again, if he, I, I think you're, your comment is very, very important because people do. If you if you say to them what bothers you, it's oftentimes not what you're thinking they need. They have a totally different perspective. And so it's really important that you are treating the patient and what they want. And if you bring something up that they didn't think they had a problem with, you can create a whole another ball of yeah. problems. So um, I also, in this kind of patient, again, if he mentioned about the lower lids, I do like to use tightening devices to tighten up the skin of the lower lids. I oftentimes will put a little bit of filler in there to, to soften that groove, that lower lid groove. He has really nice structure to his face and he's got good volume, so I don't think he necessarily needs any tightening of that, that mid-face other than, again, that lower lid. And uh, so, Gene, why don't you tell us what you did? Well, I think primarily with this patient, what I was doing was um, doing some filling of the temple. And again, you know, the point um, that Dory brought up is important. A lot of patients, you know, they complain of a certain uh, problem that may or not be the main problem that they're having. I like to have a discussion with patients and to educate them as well. So it's a give and take. The patient comes in and says, okay, I'm really worried about these lines around my eyes. But in the meantime, they have a huge volume deficit. And really, that's what's making them look more aged. And I try to explain it to them and educate them and back and forth and give them a mirror and then tell them, this is what we're going to do for you. Is this okay? You know, that type of thing. They usually don't get upset if I'm, I'm nice to them and also if I'm educating them and if they understand if we have the same goal. And if the goal... If, if our goals meet, then I think it's a give and take oftentimes. With this particular patient, I did see a significant volume loss. And because of the volume loss, especially around the temples and the cheeks, I did do sculpture for the patient. I did do some, um, I believe I did some resurfacing as well. And some Botox, you know, the second picture shows him kind of with a bit of an eye droop, but I think it was just the picture. The picture before, I think he just had that I don't know, I think he was more animated. Well, he's, lifting his eyebrows. he's lifting his eyebrows. So, um, you, you know, that's the bottom line. So I think that in the end, what I wanted to do with him was maintain a natural look. He's an actor, and, uh, you know, he wanted to continue to look masculine. And so I just wanted to have him look like himself, but just a little bit more refreshed. And I think the most dramatic is to tell him the years between these two photos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we've, we were keeping him the same for about seven years or something, or better. I think you have one more set of pictures this to show the progression. Yeah, there's a progression. So seven years. That's great. Okay. All right, the next, and that's, again, you said 2010 to 2017. Yep. So he's had a few things. Okay. All right, so Gene, do you want to comment? I mean, for this patient, I'm seeing some scarring. Um, that probably is the primary thing that I'm seeing here. So what would I do for the scarring? Yep. Probably a combination of fillers and, and um, resurfacing. I would consider CO2 resurfacing. I, I really like Dory's lecture on um, RF, so I'll have to 
um, look more into that, but my go-to for severe resurfacing has been CO2. It does have variable results, but it's important to combine. I, I feel like combination therapy is really important. Uh, for this, I would do fillers as well as the resurfacing. Yeah. So I do a lot of subcision with my yeah. scarring patients. Yeah. I think that, again, you're kind of looking at the different kinds of scar that you're dealing with. If you have ice pick scars and you don't address them mm -hmm. with some kind of subcision, and I do like to yeah. subsize and fill below, I think you're just, you're never going to improve those really deep scars. So I do combination therapy, period. I do a lot of intensive. Um, I do use intensive for my patients that have acne scarring. I tend to do a triple pass, so they'll get three passes with that device. So they usually look pretty bad for about five days. So I, I do warn them that they'll have downtime, similar to what I would get with a fractionated laser. I, again, I do combination therapy, so I'll stage it out for, um, just to mention on the, on the microneedling with radiofrequency, for lip lines, it's one of my favorites because I don't see any pigmentation alteration like we would see with the uh, resurfacing lasers, and they do great, and they have less downtime than they would with resurfacing lasers. But in someone like this, again, I would, I would do some uh, subcision, I would do some filling, and then I would do some uh, radiofrequency with microneedling. That would be my progression. And Dory, you want to tell us what you did? Uh well, actually, my daughter treated this patient, and she um, did subcision on the scar that's just lateral to the lateral eyebrow there, and also a little bit of subcision below the, the mole on the right cheek. And then he was treated initially with the plain microneedling, and then the RF came along, and so now he's had two more treatments with the RF microneedling, and he's seen a huge improvement and probably will have at least two more and maybe do some more subcision because I agree with you. Uh, scars do great. If they're, if they're the rolling scars or even box car scars, those just over, in, in, a, in an instant, they look better. And um, so I, I think that that's a very important part of dealing with uh, scar tissue is subcision. Yeah, I also subsize at the same time that I do the fillers. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go on. We're going to go to some female patients. Okay, so who wants to start with this patient? What would you do? Well, I'd be happy to. Um, the, she came in with that red face? Yes. Wow. So, um, I mean... From, from here, it looks like either a severe allergic reaction or horrible rosacea. So I'm going to go with the horrible rosacea for now because of the pustules and papules that she has in her forehead and chin. And what I would do with her is I would start her on doxycycline and schedule her tomorrow for a photofacial treatment. And I would tell her that she's probably going to need uh, at least five IPL treatments and she'll probably be on the doxycycline for at least a month, maybe six, depending on you know, how she responds um, with the pustular part of her rosacea. Um, I might even give her a little hydrocortisone cream to apply just to help with some of the erythema. Um, and uh, I think she would have a, as the photo shows, I think she would have a great cosmetic result. Yeah, I think I agree with rosacea as a diagnosis. Um, you know, rosacea this bad, 
uh, sometimes happens when patients have used steroids in the past, so it's steroid-induced rosacea. We see that a lot of the time that they come in and you ask them, what have you been using for this? And then they say fluocinonide. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, <laughs> let's put you on the doxy now and try to wean you off you know, the topical, etc. But if this was not due to steroid, we do see rosacea this bad as well. At that point, in my own practice, I do do some investigation for Demodex. I know that Demodex is not really favored among our colleagues in the United States. The Europeans have been talking about Demodex for years. Um, I think there's probably a balance. There was a famous kind of Chinese study that came out that showed that there's increased Demodex in very severely inflammatory rosacea. Based on that study, I did start treating a lot of rosacea with um, one application of permethrin even to decrease the Demodex count. And it did seem to make a huge difference for inflammatory rosacea like this. Of course, later on, there, there did come upon uh, the market a medicine called Sulantra, and Sulantra is ivermectin, which kills Demodex, and it's very effective. It is a, um, you know, an, it kills Demodex, and it's also an anti-inflammatory. So I think for this patient, I would put her on doxycycline, start her on uh, probably Sulantra, depending on if she had Demodex or not. She probably did. And I would consider a laser treatment. I may not go right the next day. I may give her a little time, maybe a couple of weeks. I do find that rosacea responds very quickly to good medications. So even within a couple of weeks, she'd be less inflammatory. So, but IPL and V-beam. So this patient had a wedding to go to, and it was her son's, and she came in looking like this. She did not want to go on pills. We did put her on Zulantra, and we did LED weekly therapy. We did red light, and that's what she looked like eight weeks later, and she was thrilled. So I think always keep in mind when we talk about light-based technologies, I think LED technology is really wonderful, and it, I have two machines in my office, and they run every single day. They probably run the most of any of my machines, because anyone that comes in with weird rashes, with rosacea, acne, things like that, they get under that red light and or blue light, and they do really, really well. And uh, so she was thrilled. She sent me a picture from the wedding. So, okay. Who wants to go first? Uh, well, looks like she had some hair work done there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of ridities. I mean, there's, I would probably do some resurfacing on this patient and some fillers. Clearly, she needs some fillers around nasolabial folds, uh, marionette lines, cheeks, temples, I would do a little Botox, maybe some light Botox around uh, the forehead, but, but definitely heavy on the glabella and around the eyes. Um, the neck, yeah, probably some Botox in the neck as well. So a combination approach, yeah. Um, I, would, I would refer her to the plastic surgeon across the hallway from me. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Because I think that, I mean, that would give her the, the best long-term result. Um, 
But if she said, no, I'm not going to, because patients do that, I, I don't want plastic surgery, I hear it all the time, then I would, yeah, I would say, okay, then what we can do is we can inject some fillers in your marionettes and nasolabials and maybe in your cheeks, you know, to give your cheeks a little bit fuller appearance. Um, we can do some Botox on your forehead. It's hard to tell about a crow's. Um, and then you could also discuss with her the possibility of doing uh, RF microneedling for skin tightening or thermage. Um, so those are, I think, uh, some of the things that I would explore with her. But I would, I would make the point, and I and I wasn't joking that I, I think she'd get a much better. Um, I, I think it would be a good start to, to do a facelift, and then after that's done, we could follow up and improve some of, you know, we could fine tune it, you know, but if she wasn't um, willing to go through that, then I would do what we've suggested. So this, what did you do? Yeah, so this patient was adamant that she didn't want any kind of botulinum toxin. She wanted no surgery whatsoever. Yeah. She wanted to look really natural, and her favorite thing that we did on her was actually tightening procedures. Yeah. So we did non-invasive tightening procedures on her to lift the tissue. She did not want, which I totally wanted to put some botulinum toxin in her neck, but she did yeah. not want it at all. So we did full face, full neck tightening procedures, and then did a little bit of fillers, and the patient was thrilled, and that's all she wanted, and we see her now probably every six months for tightening, and then usually every couple years for fillers. And that was it. Oh, and we did do a few, uh, three photo rejuvenations too, the IPL. Yeah. Okay. Which tightening procedures did you use? Um, I actually used the uh, um, infrared tightening, so Titan, the Titan machine. Titan, yeah. Okay, you wanna start? Okay, so when I look at this uh, young lady, um, what I, what I see would be the vertical lines on her upper lip. Um, it's interesting. Have you ever seen a man with vertical lines on his upper lip? You, you, don't, you don't see it unless they're really old, you know, like 90s. And I, I think the reason for that, I know I'm off topic, but I think the reason for that is that men have beards and, and, and our hair acts like rebarb. In like in steel, it keeps the steel from moving. I mean, it keeps it keeps cement from moving, so that's why they put steel in in cement. And I think it's the same thing with our upper lips that because we have these coarse hairs, it keeps our skin from moving and creating those lines. Anyway, back to her. I think that um, I would uh, I would talk to her about doing CO2 laser around her mouth because I think that would improve that dramatically. Uh, I would explain to her that not all the lines will disappear, but they will improve. Um, I would uh, discuss with her the possibility of doing uh, fillers in the nasolabial folds and also in her lips a little bit to get rid of some of the vertical lines that are in the lip. And I would probably use, uh, you know, small amounts in the lip, because I don't want her to have you know, <coughs> huge lips. I just want to improve the, the fine lines that are there. Uh, I think her forehead looks pretty darn good. I don't see any problems there. Her eyebrows are nice. Uh, you, it looks like she may have, well, it looks like she had filler 
under her eyes in the pre-photo. <laughs> she looks like she needs it more in the after photo. I'm not sure. Is the one on the right? After. After, yeah. So, yep. um, but I don't know. Could have worn out. Yeah, it could have worn off. But anyway, so I think with the CO2 laser, though, on her full face, I think she would have a, a nice result. So I think that, um, you know, you really have to judge with the patient, again, what their timing is and what their downtime is. Because on these kind of patients, I love the microneedling with RF on those upper lips. Uh, and the issue becomes that it's not one session, so it really depends on their timing. Certainly a little bit of filler along those lip lines, certainly a little bit of filler like a restal and fine lines in the actual lines themselves, I think would be nice if they didn't have the time to do the microneedling with the radio frequency. I think certainly I would put some filler in those lower lids, some filler in those temples. I think that was already done. And um, otherwise, she has a very nice shape brow and, and all that, so I wouldn't necessarily do much there. Um, I typically, if I'm treating that temple area, oftentimes like to put at least a little some kind of botulinum toxin in there just to soften those lines. And uh, again, depending on how much laxity she has in these pictures, it looks like she might have a little bit of the cheek laxity. I might do a, a tightening procedure mid-face for that as well. Jean? Yeah, this lady's 55 years old, and um, she wants to just remain looking natural. I've known her for many years. So um, we did discuss CO2. CO2 she couldn't do because of the downtime. I did mainly fillers for her on this. I've been doing her for many years, so the, I think just the filler under the eyes is kind of wearing out. So just on that picture, it just needed refreshing. But what I did here is mainly the temples. And if you look at the difference between the, the left and the right picture, you'll see a huge difference. She looks probably seven years, eight years younger on the right than she does on the left, just because of the temples alone, and uh, some in the cheeks as well. So this is primarily filler, and on the upper lip as well, I did some filler uh, just a little bit. This is someone who needs a natural look and is not looking for anything um, you know, beyond that, we did discuss PRP with microneedling. We did discuss um, tightening with hers, which she's probably going to do in the future. But yeah, for 55, not bad. Yeah, I think we have a side picture of her too. Yeah. yeah. And you can see that, I think, the, that the way the light reflects off her cheek, I think. That's it. And, and that's exactly right. So that's what I was aiming for. So that reflection that you see, um, that's exactly what Glynis was saying you could see that that reflection is broken up on the left, and then the reflection is picked up on the right. And that's what gives the, the right side more youthful appearance. Yeah. Okay. And I think this is our last case, so I'll let you start, Doreen. Um, well, I think she needs a rhinoplasty. <laughs> but she doesn't Just think Just a wide-angle lens. <laughs> Uh, well, she has some erythema in her cheeks, and I don't know if that's makeup or if it's true erythema. She has some wrinkling in her neck. Uh, so this would be a good patient, uh, I think, to do intense pulse light treatment on the cheeks uh, to get rid of the redness, uh, skin tightening devices on the neck. Um, and uh, you know, I would use my RF microneedling to do that. Uh, looks like she also had um, some uh, filler in her lips. Her lips look much better. And maybe it's the camera angle, but I think they look much better. And also under her eyes, it looks a significant improvement. Um, 
So that's probably what I would, I would probably go with uh, intense pulse light if that was rosacea, and I would use uh, RF for her neck and fillers for around her mouth, and uh, also, um, I think that's about what I would do. I definitely agree with you doing some IPL on there. I think um, one of my favorite tools for the upper lid laxity is both the Thermi Smooth as well as Thermage. Thermage is typically a one session treatment and I will do that for the upper lids. It's the only place I find that people can tolerate and don't find it that painful. And you can really get a nice tightening of those upper lids as well. Um, I do think tightening devices are huge here, especially on that neck and that submental region would be great. I probably would put a little botulinum toxin in the neck if she does show some banding on the front view. Um, and then I think that the lips look great. A little bit of fillers around that chin area might be helpful as well to change the projection. And uh, Jean? Yeah, again, a patient who wanted a natural look. Uh, I believe over time that we've known her, she's, she has had a series of photofacials. She probably needs more. Uh, she has some, had some tightening with therapy on the lower um, face as well as the neck. She's had some fillers and some botulinum toxin as well. So if we see the forehead, it looks a lot less wrinkled. Again, natural look. You know, she doesn't want to look different. And that is something that we have to, you know, be aware of with patients as well. They, you know, does she want a nose job? Probably not. She probably thinks she looks great with that nose. So that's up to her. <laughs> and that's where those pre-pictures are critical so that you can really show the patient what you started with and where they are. Any questions? I don't think there is. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. We do have one more case. Sorry, you're right. <laughs> okay, Jean, you want to start? Uh, yeah, it looks like it was an extensive Mohs procedure. So now the treatment is for the scarring. Um, what I usually do for something like this would be um, V-beam to start with. I, I do use fillers. Um, I think a filler like, um, you know, um, Voluma or something, you know, could, could really give you a lot of collagen. And it turns out that hyaluronic acid fillers do generate collagen, especially when done repeatedly. So I think it could be a more permanent result as well. Resurfacing, that's another thing to consider, especially once um, the redness is out. So once the redness is gone, consider things like um, fractional resurfacing, especially in this case, probably more of an ablative resurfacing because of the extensive scarring. But yeah, good result at the end. So I agree with you. I would definitely do a, a pulse dye laser on this. I would definitely do some fillers. I would consider even the microneedling with radiofrequency. We use that a lot for scars and get some really nice results. I think the thing that Dr. Gilbert had said earlier is that you really want to talk to the people around you, the physicians around you, especially people that are doing these surgeries, because the sooner they get in post-surgically, post -surgically, the better they do. So I tell my patients when they see me, if they're going to go get any kind of surgery, any kind of re reconstruction, anything, and they have a scar, I want to see them no later than six weeks, and I will start scar therapy on that at that point. And I think you really can get some amazing results where, to the point where you don't see the scar if you start at an earlier point in time. Right. So this is a, 
a, a gentleman who had a uh, squamous cell carcinoma on his uh, scalp, and he was treated by a um, by another dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in town, and his wife was is a patient of ours. She comes in for photofacial. So she sent him in to see me uh, because it was, the scar was obviously very red. And we did, that's after three photofacial treatments, three IPL treatments, that's all it took. And I ran into this patient, I was out at the Apple store and he saw me, and I, I didn't recognize him, but he saw me and he came over and, and he, He's got his computer and he puts his head down and kind of just shoves it right into my face. He says, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and and as, it was actually, he looked better than the photograph. Uh, you could barely see any scar tissue. Um, the redness was completely gone. Uh, he was one happy camper. And, um, and that's really, that's, that's just three IPL treatments. Now, both... Um, Gene and Glennis mentioned the V-beam. Absolutely, uh, pulse dye lasers are great to treat scars. Um, but for whatever reason, we just decided to try IPL on him, and it, and it worked just wonderfully. So he's a, he's a happy guy. Well, I mean, IPL can be set to, uh, let's say, 590. And if it's set to 590, then it's, it's basically doing what the V-beam is doing, except it also catches... Uh, the smaller and the larger vessels, the deeper and the, and, the, and the more superficial vessels. So it's a way to clean up the scar a lot of the time. Um, usually V-beam is my first line, but I do use IPL as well to clean the scar up because of the size differences in the vessels. Now that you mentioned that, well, what we did with this fellow was um, the first pass was with um, a 560 filter. And then we went back with the 590 filter. Mm -hmm. And then on his third treatment when he came in, we actually used the 515 to catch some of the more superficial telangiectasias yeah. and followed with the 590. So he had two passes every time he came in. And most of our patients do, uh, even when we do photofacial, we almost, except for the first treatment, we always make two passes on their skin. And then we have a, a, a handheld 532 diode laser that we use to treat individual telangiectasias so that the patients are there for about an hour with each photofacial treatment. So it's a very comprehensive treatment. I think also when you're doing this, the idea is that if you're using the photofacial, you're cleaning up the skin around it as well. So when everything looks better, the scar is less noticeable as yeah, well. Yeah. Any questions? So the question was using yeah. Stratamids, Stratacells, um, the Stratic scar therapy. Yeah, we do. We use Stratamid. As a matter of fact, I used it for the first time when I had my PDT treatment a couple weeks ago. And whenever I put it on, it just felt so much better than just the Aquaphor. And so I, I'm, I've become a believer in the, in the Stratamid. Gene? Yeah, I don't use Stratamid, but for, for scarring after surgery, I mean, the obvious new gel, you know, that type of stuff with silicon gel is uh, really key in, in the healing process. They do much better with that. 
I think it depends on, again, the level of the scar. So the idea is that when you have an open wound, they're different with the stratamed you're talking about, they have different ones. They have one for the open wound and they have one for the closed wound. I think you can't go wrong with the closed wounds. I've actually seen mixed result with the open wound use. So I tend to, with my open wounds, actually prefer duoderm because duoderm is easily found. You can yeah. find it online. And I do find that it really does help the wounds heal without a scar. And so we put it on our patients before they leave. We send them with a little piece of it, and then we say, go get it online. <laughs> you used to be able to get it at the pharmacy, but you can't anymore. Um, but the closed scars, that's where I think the strata cell works. Strata. There's three different names, so. Yeah. Any other? question was dehydrated placental tissue for scars. Anyone? I, no, I don't. Or for keloids. Yeah. I think the question always is cost, you know, so I think the, you have to weigh what, you know, what you want to do as far as how the cost goes and how that's going to affect you and, and is it worth it for you in that situation. And I don't do a lot of placental, you know, removal, so I won't be seeing a lot of placental. No, I know. I'm teasing. Right, right. I'm teasing. Oh, I think we have questions over here too, so. General cosmetic question. Do you consider Botox as a preventive for rightids and do you see patients developing tolerance and needing more units over time even if waiting three months? You guys want to start? On yeah, well, absolutely it's a preventative for rightids. Um, you know, if you start getting Botox injections in your late 20s, early 30s when you're first starting to develop rightids, you're not going to get those deep lines that you will if you wait till you're 40 or 45 or 50. So. Absolutely, um, it is a preventive. And once the lines are deep, typically the toxins are not yeah. enough. You do have to add some fillers or they yeah. won't disappear. Um, can you describe your procedure for scar subcision? I will tell you that for me, I use what's called a no-core needle, which I think is the best thing. Tell me if you disagree, no. but I think it's the best thing for subcision. However, Mark Taylor just came up with a new device that kind of looks like one of my liposuction subsizers um, for subsizing scars, and he gives a course on it for those who are interested um, for subcision. And, and you know, you can use a 20 gauge needle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I inject them with, with lidocaine and yes. with epi because that cuts down on the bruising. And then I just, I use a 20 gauge needle and I have the other needles as well, but I don't know, I'm just really comfortable with that. Yeah, I, I do the same during injection of filler. I'll just use a 20 gauge needle and I, you know, it just depends on, your technique, and I'm just so used to it, and um, I get a good feedback from it, so it works really well. What is the protocol used for red light for rosacea? So I have my patients come in once a week for the red light, um, and I tell them it usually is six to seven treatments. There is no pretreatment necessary, but I do typically try to get them at least on a topical. Um, I love, of course, using oral medications for rosacea, typically a sub-microbial dose of antibiotics, like doxycycline, like an oratia, um, or doxy 50 milligrams, but um, some patients really don't want to take pills, and so they'll do the light therapy. I also give them a whole sheet of things to prevent 
breakouts because if they're eating lots of spicy foods and drinking lots of alcohol, they can exacerbate the rosacea anyways. So we try to cut back on things that can stimulate a breakout. Yeah, I think lifestyle is really important. I, I, I think the uh, consultation about diet, exercise, sun exposure, the right types of sunscreen to use is both appreciated and effective by patients. Technique for filling under the eye or the temporal fusion line. Take unless anyone wants it. I don't inject under the eye. So when I do uh, underneath the eye, again, it depends on the patient and um, small aliquots are used. I typically will not use more than half a cc per eye when I'm starting out, sometimes even less. Uh, again, it depends on the patient, but I use very, very, very small aliquots of filler. I typically use Rustolin in that area because it doesn't tend to swell like something like Juvederm. And again, I do little tiny droplets along the bone and, uh, and again, small amounts. And I do massage to make sure there's no lumps or bumps when I'm doing it, treating both the medial area and the lateral canthus. I do not typically fill the temporal fusion line. What I will fill is micro droplets of the uh, horizontal lines on the forehead. I will do that, and I will fill the temple itself. Yeah, I do the temple, and I do inject under the eyes, although I, I know the risks, but uh, patients really um, demand it, and I think someone who knows what they're doing is better than someone who doesn't and can cause a lot less damage. So. Um, Traditionally, I've used Restylane, and then lately I have been using more Belotero. It's a lighter filler, more superficial. Also, about a half a cc under each eye. The newer filler, Volbella, I've tried that. It's working well, so I'll keep working on, uh, you know, it's, it's the practice of medicine, you know, practice. What do you think about fillers at the high cheekbones? It said uh, Voluma in the temples, lateral cheeks, without filling the medial cheeks. Someone take it or I'll take it? Well, my daughter does a lot of that. She does a lot of Voluma in the temples and doesn't go down into the cheek area with it. Yeah, I think, I think the issue again is you have to look at your patient. patient. You yeah. have to see what that patient needs. And yeah. so frequently the temples as we age do get more hollowed and so it's a great area to fill. Um, frequently the high cheekbones are a good area to fill. Again, depending on the patient, if you make them too prominent here, they may not want to be more hallowed, and other individuals love that look. So you really have to kind of weigh that balance and also, I think, have a good eye as to what aesthetically looks good. If it becomes very prominent here, I think it can look overdone, and that's not what most patients want to have. Yes? Okay. Yeah. I have patients who've treated overseas for Dematex and see our office maintaining a dose of PO medications to address this as this is how they were managed. Some are quite obsessed with the idea of this infestation. <laughs> um, so Demodex is an issue, and, and I do tend to scrape skin a lot, and you can show the Demodex on a slide. So if I have a patient that I feel is adequately treated, I will oftentimes scrape their skin, show them on a slide that there's, the Demodex currently is not active, and, uh, and we can get away with getting them off certain medications, things like that. But most of the time, again, if they've got rosacea, they may be on a low-dose antibiotics for a long time anyway. They may be on that 50 milligram dose or 40 milligram dose of erasia. So you just want to make sure that you go over how Demodex works and, and that you can clear it with these topicals, um, not necessarily oral medication, but topicals can clear the Demodex and they can do really well. Um, Zulantra is a great topical to use and patients tolerate it well. 
Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about infestation, the idea of infestation, it's, it's bordering on delusions of parasitosis at times, you know. Uh, and you do get this from patients from abroad, especially from the, the, the Eastern Bloc, that uh, are obsessed with Demodex. Um, I think it's nice that we have cilantro now that, you know, we can to treat topically and patients are more satisfied that they're doing something topically. I think most patients don't want to take anything oral. Mm -hmm. So for them, you know, they can just use a topical. How do you charge patients for scar treatments? Um, I think, at least for me, it depends on how big the scar is, how long it's going to take. If I'm doing the procedure or if one of my staff's doing the procedure, it, that will make the difference. And, and like Dory had mentioned, if they're really, really nice, they may get a better price. And if they're a pain in the butt, they may not get such a good price. Um, so I think you just you have to kind of determine how long each treatment takes. For me to flip on a laser, typically it's 250 bucks. So if I just do one spot with a laser or a very, very tiny scar, it would be 250. And I would go from there depending on how much work. And then again, knowing that when you're dealing with patients, how many sessions you're thinking approximately. And I do not give packages because I have no idea when it comes to scars how many sessions someone will need. So I just say, here's the price per session. And what I'll find myself doing is if they're doing really well, and it's not taking me as long, the third or fourth or fifth or sixth time, I may just drop their price down and just put a little note, you know, and decrease their price, and then they're really excited about that. Yeah, we do it very similarly. Uh, our, minimum, our minimum charge is $250 for um, treatment, and it can be as high as 400 depending on, you know, what we're doing. So uh, it's going to vary between 250 and 400 Yeah, but the same... Obviously, if the scar was caused by me, I usually will do it pro bono. Yeah. As it pertains to patients prone to keloids, do you surgically remove them, and what is your post-surgical protocol to prevent recreating? You want to take it, or I'll do it? Go ahead. Okay. Um, so that's a really difficult question, because I think that we, we can never guarantee that we're not going to have someone who has a keloid that has a keloid removed not form another keloid. So we do everything in our power to reduce that risk. So let's say I had a girl recently that I did an earlobe keloid on uh, removal. So we typically take it off. I will oftentimes have them use topicals, things like Aldara in the area, hopefully to prevent regrowth. I will also typically inject with a corticosteroid. Afterwards, I will also put on a pressure um, earring in that area. Again, that's a keloid in an earlobe, so I can do that. Um, but in other parts of the body, other parts of the you know stomach, arms, things like that, it really just depends on the patient. So I typically treat the keloid. I see them back typically monthly. I will do lasers in those areas if I need to, injecting monthly if I need to with a corticosteroid, having them do a topical if I think it's working, and, um, and keep a close eye on them. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Yeah, keloids come back. Yeah. I think we answered the Stratamed, Stratacell Question, are you rec what are you recommending for sunscreen to scar-prone patients? Um, well, I recommend a sunscreen to everybody. It doesn't matter if they have scars. I'm not sure what that means right there. But uh, the idea is that all of my patients are told if they're going to spend the money on photorejuvenation or treating their skin or making themselves look better, I really try to enforce the fact that if they don't wear sunscreen, they will have their skin age faster. We just know that it's the best anti-aging product out there. So um, everyone is told to get on a sunscreen, either a physical block like a zinc oxide or a chemical block like an avobenzone. The physical blockers do not 
Um, the only one that really covers all of UVA is the zinc oxide, and the only one um, in the chemical one is the avobenzone. Anything else short of that is not going to cover UVA light. You're just going to get UVB protection and not UVA. So I'm really adamant with my patients. I typically say an SPF of 30 or higher, and that's how we do it. Yeah, um, I think so. I, th I think that when patients ask me, um, we have different types of sunscreens in the office if they want to purchase one. We have mineral sunscreens and, and your typical sunscreens. But my, my response is usually use what you like because I can give a patient a sunscreen and, and if they put it on and they don't like the way it looks or feels, they're never going to use it again. So I, I typically will say to people, if there's a sunscreen out there that's 15 or higher, um, that's fine with me. But, you know, you've got to use it, and you've got to put it on every day. And um, uh, it, patients who are really prone to skin cancer, um, I recommend it if they're going to be out fishing or surfing or, you know, out playing golf all day, they put zinc oxide on because that's really the only physical block that blocks everything. And, uh, and some people will. Most people won't. You know, they don't want to walk around, you know, with a white nose like we did when we were kids because that's all there was. When I was growing up, there were no sunscreens. Uh, we had sea and ski, but that, I think that just made you burn more. Uh, so it was, it was zinc oxide or nothing. And uh, it, it actually was more common to see white noses back in the 50s and 60s than it is now. One thing I would... Um, consider is the patient's um, general condition. So if the patient is prone to rosacea, then I would recommend a physical sunscreen because physical sunscreens can, can uh, reflect the sun, decrease the heat that is coming in, and the same with melasma. So a lot of patients who wear very, very heavy um, chemical sunscreen, especially patients with melasma, they say that, oh, I'm out there and I'm wearing 90 sunscreen, but my melasma still flares up. Well, the reason is because when the sun comes in and the ultraviolet is converted to a non-ultraviolet um, wavelength, some heat is released into the skin and it can actually heat up the skin, thus causing the melasma to flare up. So in order to prevent that, we use physical sunscreen. And it could be a lower SPF, but still more effective for melasma. Or rosacea. And remember that avobenzone is actually degraded by the sun, so it has to also have mexoril in it, otherwise it isn't stabilized either. So that's a lot of times people are putting that on, and again, so it's really product um, picking the right product too. Um, what is the earliest that you would treat a patient after Mohs surgery? One month. One month was the answer? That's my answer. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Do you have a filler preference for older adults in terms of skin fragility? I, I like Juvederm in, in older patients, um, but I don't, I don't like, I mean, if they're, in, if they're in their 70s, you know, trying to inject in the marionettes, I think is not very satisfactory. It, you have to use so much, and it just, it just never looks right. So I try to um, either get them to have a skin tightening procedure or plastic surgery. Uh, I will inject nasal labials, or we'll put it out on the cheekbones, but I, I like Juvederm. I'm sure Restylane is just as effective. You know. Yeah, when they come in with a huge amount of sun damage and wrinkling, we can't use, you know, a Juvederm or two and do anything for that. So, you know, we have to explain to them, hey, you know, you probably would need some resurfacing 
or surgical procedures in order to be happy with, what you're, yeah. with, with what's going on. Otherwise, it's just a waste of their money. So again, it's combination therapy there. Have you encountered foreign body inflammatory granules in patients who have had substances injected illegally in out, or outside the country? And absolutely, I have. Yeah, I have, too. I yeah. have definitely yeah. have yeah. it. And the problem becomes yeah. you certainly want, if possible, to know what it is that was injected. Um, sometimes you find out, sometimes you don't. And the danger is, if I'm not sure, I will usually take a piece of skin and find out what's in there. And I will send it off for pathology to find out what I'm dealing with. Sure. Yeah, I had a patient recently who came from Colombia. A uh, really nice lady. She's not, you know, she's, she's uh, well-to-do. But, you know, she went to Colombia and had some work done there. Um, and something was put under the skin. She comes in, and she had a nodule. It was tender. So I treated it initially with antibiotics. It did not resolve. And then I sent her to a plastic surgeon who then imaged it, and there was a pus pocket in there. And... Uh, had to take it out, put her on IV antibiotics, the whole thing. So it happens. Do you recommend HelioCare oral capsules for your patients? I take it. I'm going to talk about it in my talk. Yeah, I, I, it's not really on my okay. radar right now. Uh, favorite sunblock brand for melasma? The kind that they'll wear. <laughs> I. Uh, I the Skin Medica Total Defense, I like. So he likes Skin Medica because it can defense. Because it contains an anti-infrared ingredient as well. So it can block the infrared as well as the ultraviolet. Yeah. Okay. I think we're done with that section. Okay. Um, you're going to go ahead and talk. Okay, and I'm done. Okay. The overall performance of the speaker. Well, I would like to take this opportunity to thank... Dr. Avalon and the SDPA for inviting me. I had a wonderful time here this morning and, and uh, I really enjoyed speaking with both of you and uh, I can't wait to go home and talk to my daughter about everything that was, <laughs> she, she just flew in late last night from Taiwan, that's why she's not here for this, but you know, she was gone for two weeks. She's got a really good boss that lets her take a lot of time <laughs> off. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.